Today we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to continue our talk on, for a critique of the political economy of the sign, mm. where we left off, brief summary I guess, looking at the way in which um, Baudrillard was trying to move or set up the initial conditions for his move away from thinking about the economy, thinking about the production of signs, and this sort, ironically, thinking about the production of signs, away from production itself towards the consumption of signs. How does consumption play a role, and of course, how Veblen serves as a prior, as a thinker, for him to go into this line of thought, to explore this terrain. So at this part in the book, about midway through, uh, he, he begins to look at the, I guess, the more institutional formations of this shift in the logic, of this breach in analyzing signs away from their original kind of performative designation towards, you know, what they could possibly mean in the domain of signs. So for Baudrillard, he says there's something hindering this, moving into chapter four here, and it goes as follows. For him, today, the painting is a signed object, object as much as it is a painted surface. So what he's getting at here is that there's a certain what I, I believe there's a certain cultural obsession today with getting at the root of, in this case, let's say the work of art, where the work of art is not something that has meaning per se in its own right, but it's something that is uh, has meaning inscribed on it through the author, through the painter, I should say. And there's a certain obsession we have today with searching for that original kind of locale, kind of locus, for, with which we can then ins inscribe our own meaning onto it, which we'll then derive from that point. So it's sort of self-referential. It's tautological in that way. So Baudrillard takes this point to then suggest that, that a certain fact may be of interest here. Until the 19th century, the copy of an original work had its own value. It was a legitimate practice. In our time, the copy is seen as legitimate, illegitimate, inauthentic. It is no longer art, per se. So thus, the painted oeuvre becomes a cultural object by means of the signature in itself, where the value inscribed on a work of art does not derive from its uh, ability to adhere to a certain objective kind of model of what constitutes good art, per se, but is actually actually derives from the signature, from the thing that gives it that sort of meaning. Now, it, this is uh, a problem for Baudrillard because if we think of the first half, he wants to get to the root of things as signs. So if we begin inscribing things with a certain meaning that is transcendental to the sign in that, for example, the authorship or the painter, then for him we are moving away from a possible um, new analysis that considers the sign. So the problem that poses for him is that in a sense all art, and art is just the example he gives now, is a simulation, right? No matter what art you're dealing with, it is something that is intended to re represent something else in the world. It is that thing that doesn't actually have any affiliation with 
Origins, but actually is a, a remake of a supposed origin, which is something we'll come to problematize later. So the work, he, he writes, the work is no longer rooted in God, in the objective order of the world, but in the series itself. The essential task then is to preserve the authenticity of the sign. So if we think back to the first book, his first book, The System of Objects, we recall that distinction between the model and the series, where these are the two kind of constitutive elements of the system of objects, where the objects fall into either one or the other, either the instantaneous type, the synchrony as opposed to the diachrony, if you will. In either case, however, there is a certain um, commitment to a, a present in that the objects are uh, capable of adapting, adjusting to accommodate a certain cultural, social uh, makeup and retain something of a degree of status or, or pecuniary decency to be true to the uh, words of Veblen. So for Baudrillard, this is why, in his words, the slightest attack upon the sign which is both authentic and accepted, unmotivated and codified, is felt as a profound attack upon the cultural system itself, and why today the forgery and the copy are viewed as sacrilege. This is a pretty hard-hitting point, because we have a certain cultural obsession now to search for origins. There is a certain desire to get to the heart of things. And I think Baudrillard is really trying to turn that on its head to suggest that no, meaning can exist in, very other, in, in, in other places as well. Meaning is not, um, I guess, origins don't have a monopoly on meaning. Take, for instance, the debate, you know, that's still going on about whether Homer was a real person or Homer was a group of people. A very ridiculous, like, there, it, it doesn't change anything. However, there is, and not everyone subscribes to this, of course, but there is a cultural desire to know. And it's a very destructive one in Baudrillard's eyes because it takes us away from, I guess, the power of the sign, if there, if we can call it a power, or the realm of the sign, the sort of um, mysticism of the sign. It takes us out of that and places us in what, you know, what I've called a, a sort of transcendental space, which can always grow to be rather fascist. So modern art plays a pretty profound role in this sort of schema in this scheme. Because modern art, in, in the way we think of it, and how it's denounced today by, you know, art critics, or whatever, and we might think of, um, you know, Andy Warhol, a, a figure that Baudrillard was very fascinated with, that's something we'll explore in his later texts, but there there's a certain hatred of modern art. Baudrillard suggests that it's for this reason. If it bears witness to our time, that is modern art, it doesn't so neither by direct allusion, nor even in its pure gesture denying a systematized world. It is in testifying to the systematic of this full world by means of the inverse and homologous system, systematic of its empty gesture, a pure gesture marking an absence, in that it doesn't communicate, doesn't attempt, it doesn't try to deceive the person viewing it, doesn't connect it with some kind of a obscure reality, doesn't you know, claim the beautiful over the sublime, if you will, to be uh, the Kantians out there, I'm sorry. On this note, then, Baudrillard dives into his, I guess, more cynical side when he suggests that modern art is, in a, 
a sense sort of resistive practice, but it, it's not one that um, promises anything great, in, in which he says. So modern art in itself wishes to be negative, critical, innovative, and a perpetual surpassing, as well as immediately or almost assimilated, accepted, integrated, consumed. One must surrender to the evidence. Art no longer contests anything if it ever did. Revolt is isolated, the maldiction consumed. All the more reason there would seem to be then to abandon all nostalgia, resign negativity, and admit finally that it is in the very movement of its authenticity, in systematizing itself according to a formal constraint, to a formal constraint, in constituting itself according to a play of successful su successive differences, that the work of art offers itself of its own initiative as immediately integrable, integrable, integratable, that's a spelling mistake in there, in a global system that conjugates it like any other object or group of objects. In this sense, modern works have intended, have indeed become everyday object. Although laden with cultural connotations, they pose no problems to the environment. So this, you know, thinking about art in terms of a supposed radicality, we are seeing here uh, what Baudrillard will, will come to do later in this text. Trying to think about a, a positive use for media, whether that media be that medium be art, be television, be whatever. If something subscribes to the cultural logic of the dissemination of material, of knowledge, of anything of that sort, is it always in and of itself going to ascribe to a certain logic, certain hegemonic logic of a given cultural system? Which is the point he makes about art when he says that modern art is quite exactly an art of collusion vis-a-vis -vis this contemporary world. It plays with it and, is as, and it is included in the game. It can parody this world, illustrate it, simulate it, alter it, it never disturbs the order, which is also its own. So in that sense, th there's a certain pessimism, but one that he kind of comes out of, and we'll, we'll get to that. I don't know how much he speaks about it here, but certainly in some of his later books, when we think of resistance in terms of Baudrillardian resistance, what that might look like. So Baudrillard then turns his attention away from the work of art in itself towards that sort of zone for the distribution of art kind of similar to the way in which he analyzed malls in his previous uh, two books, where the mall is sort of the amalgamation of, or the zone for the distribution of objects, where objects are given their sort of meaning, whatever, or their lack thereof, where he says that the auction, this crucible of the interchange of values, where economic value, sign value, and symbolic value transfuse according to the rules of the game, can be considered as an ideological matrix one of the shrines of the political economy of the sign. So it's in the art auction, or in the auction itself, that value is it's built up, and it's not built up by any sort of logical systemic force. And it's not even built up by that sort of abstract force, notably capital or money, according to Baudrillard. It's not as though things are inherently um, I don't know, an antique mirror is inherently worth $1,500. Like, I don't know, random example. But that, for Baudrillard, it is not the quantity of money that takes on value, as in the economic logic of equivalence, but rather money spent, sacrificed, eaten up according to a logic of difference and challenge, 
Every act of purchase is a simultaneously an economic act and a trans-economic act of the production of differential sign value. So things being, I guess, distributed, things changing hands, gives it a certain value, and time plays, plays a role in, in this as well. It's not something that Baudrillard is really interested in, but the passage of time, a relatively arbitrary um, marker of something's worth, or how things before, I believe it's 1930, are considered antiques. A incredibly arbitrary date. Like there's no, there's no logic to it, really. However, those things are granted a certain privilege. They're granted a certain status above other things that come afterwards. And then value is kind of swallowed up by it. Value becomes, it's like a sponge and that value is just pushed in on it and it accepts value kind of endlessly without, without, a, without a certain logic, without having a deep-rooted connection to uh, a pre-established, I guess, set of rules that are unchanging, universal, a priori, if you will, um, set of guidelines that denote or give it that value. So there's a shift here between the Marxist paradigm of a thing occupying a certain or containing a certain exchange value that can then be substituted in for use value, where you know you want to get at the bare bones of the thing itself. What does it do for me? What can it do for me to relieve me of my you know labor? Or from the capitalist perspective, how can this thing make me more money? For Baudrillard, there's a shift. So consumption considered as this conversion of economic exchange value into sign exchange value, where he's making a distinction, where it's not as though there is a connection between the economic exchange value and use value, or I guess the worth of something based in the realm of exchange that has a fundamental connection with the use value, or with its utility, with its realness in the world, with its use value, or with its uh, purpose. But that we're dealing now with sign exchange, which doesn't have a very easy connection to a thing or a use or anything of the sort, which complicates the matter greatly. So what he calls for in response to this, or how he sort of labels this, is as the revolution of political economy. So this is generalized by the theoretical and practical eruption of the political economy of the sign. So in effect, Baudrillard is calling for a dramatic shift in how we approach political economy, where, thinking of the title of the text, for a critique of the political economy of the sign, he doesn't want to just inscribe onto the sign the same sort of meaning that was inscribed onto, you know, the use value or exchange value. He wants to radically overthrow this, which he says this will then imply the traditional boundaries of political economy canonized by bourgeois economic science as well as by Marxist, Marxist analysis should be disregarded. This is primarily because, or this comes out in the, que in the question he asks, why would the dominant class have need of culture if the economic is truly the determining instance? What sense can be made beyond the realm of production, beyond the factory, in the production of meaning, and this is, you know, this is why Veblen is just a, a huge help for him, who 
like other critical theorists of the political economy of the sign, which is what he calls them, these people are exiled like Bevelin, buried under Marxist, in quote, this is his words, buried under a Marxist or neo-Marxist terrorist analysis. Like Bevelin and Goblo, who are the great precursors of a cultural analysis of class which, beyond the dialectical materialism of productive forces, examines the logic of sumptuary values which assures and perpetuates through its code the hegemony of the dominant class and in a way shelters the latter through its transubstantiation of values from economic revolutions and their social repercussions. So beginning to theorize these things in different terms, not looking at the uh, things always in relation to the basic use value or getting, trying to get at things by their intended meaning through to their intended meaning, which is, a, for him, for Baudrillard, this terroristic. That's to strip it of its potential as or as it is, or to suggest that things can't have meaning in the realm of culture, in the realm of the sign, which is really where, what he's interested in. And if we fail to look at it in those terms, the same hegemonic practices can still permeate. So it's really, it's not as cynical as, as I think some people might think of him, precisely because he's laying out this, this foundational approach. Like, it's very new at the time um, to think of things in these terms. But it opens up the possibility for a radical critique and, by extension, a critique of the forms of critique that existed before it, notably Marxism, in this, in this case. So on this note, Baudrillard makes um, something of an interesting claim where he, uh, with regards to the fetish object, which has a certain role in classic Marxism and, and psychoanalysis as another another field that's interested in fetishism. But for Baudrillard, um, it's not, in his words, it's not the psychological relation of the individual to the object that gives birth to fetishism and that sustains the principle of exchange. Object femini uh, feminism, object fetishism never supports exchange in its principle. The social principle of exchange supports the fetishized value of the object because the very, um, the very systematized notion of exchange itself plays such a profound role in the uh, development of the fetish, whatever, whatever that might mean, he doesn't define what the fetish necessarily is, but he kind of lay, lays out it, the, the space in which it does exist, which is perhaps bad scholarship, but we'll, hopefully we can forgive him for this. However, this point is interesting, where the fetishized object is certainly held up as a thing in itself, given the role of sumptuary values, given, you know, the certain um, meaning is, it's, uh, given to signs, given to representation, given to pecuniary decency, which doesn't have any fundamental connection in itself to some basic human um, quality, i.e. the psyche. How would the psyche have a connection to a thing outside of it, something that's bound up in the changing, bound up to change over time. That would then suggest that, in a sense, the psyche is something that is political. Which, if if the psyche or the unconscious is political, then it's it's not unconscious. It's very much bound up in a certain. But that that's a conversation for uh, for another day, because I can I can hear the hardcore psychoanalysts getting getting mad right now.
So Baudrillard doesn't spend long dealing with this problem of fetishism. Uh, it, and that's something he'll come back to in one of his later books. Uh, he, he probably... This wasn't really the place for it, but he felt the need to say it anyways. Kind of an arrogant move, but no, we'll try and forgive him for it. But still in the same chapter, he, uh, he looks at another kind of institutional formation, that of the museum. And what role the museum plays then in the distribution of meaning, or in the sort of reconciliation of it. Where he says that still, in the realm of painting, it is interesting in this sense to confront the reciprocal function of the institution of the market and of the auction with the institution of the museum. One might believe that, by removing the works from this private parallel market, to nationalize them, the museum returns them to a sort of collective ownership, and so to their authentic aesthetic function. In fact, the museum acts as a guarantee for the aristocratic exchange, to which he arrives at the conclusion then that museums play the role of banks in the political economy of paintings, not content, not content to act as an organic guarantee of speculation in art. The museum acts as an agency guaranteeing the universality of painting, and so also the aesthetic enjoyment, a socially inessential value, it has been seen of all others. Uh, museums serve, are, are a really interesting point, and it's something Baudrillard comes back to over the course of his work, uh, where he, he turns into a verb to museify, museumify, but that's to render things still. And it's not as though the museum unearths a basic universal principle of any given artifact, but that it's given a certain status as artifact, whatever that means, by being placed in the museum. But the museum is, is not something that protects an artifact or the cultural significance associated with it, but is actually, in a sense, the death of that artifact because it's meant, it's forced to take on a certain meaning, which can then be consumed, right? Mostly for Western, Western eyes. Can then be destroyed through the act of being seen, which is a theme that runs all throughout Baudrillard's work and how the, in how the one seeing is committing as much of a, as is, is not innocent, in the dominant practices of authority. Where seeing and forcing those to be seen is very much wrapped up in the systemic logic of simulation, of making things apparent. So it's on that note that Baudrillard moves into his next chapter, where it gets, I guess, technical. He has all these kind of formulas out and all that, and I want to do my best to kind of articulate it orally, he says that the ideological genesis of needs postulated four different logics of value, right? So, if we think back at the functional logic of use value, the economic logic of exchange value, the differential logic of sign value, and the logic of symbolic exchange. Symbolic exchange is really something that we're going to be left in the dark with here until we get to symbolic exchange and death. But, for now, Let's think of symbolic exchange as being that thing, or uh, exchange, the forms of exchange that precede, you know, the capitalistic forms, or the ones that came out of um, industrialization. 
So for Baudrillard, he, he, he lines all these up. So he says use value, economic exchange value, sign exchange value, and symbolic exchange. So here there is no attempt at a theoretical articulation of these various logics. There's simply an attempt to mark out the respective fields and the, tra and, and the tra transit from one to the other. So from uh, use value to economic exchange value, the field of the process of production of exchange values of the commodity form, etc., described by political economy. So that's productive consumption. So from use value to then sign exchange value, the field of the production of signs originating in the destruction of utility, sumptuary values, culture, we could think of anything in that sort of realm, um, where it develops a certain meaning beyond its use or beyond its role in the, the marketplace. And then from use value to symbolic exchange value, this is the field of consumption that is of the destruction of use value. So it's no longer, however, in order to produce sign values in the form of culture, as I just mentioned, uh, or anything of that sort, but rather in the, I just lost the ear, in the transgression of the economic, in effect, reinstating symbolic exchange. So this is the presentation, the gift, the festival, symbolic exchange a la mouse. So from there, then he begins to think of exchange value to use value. So he runs through the process from exchange to each of the other forms uh, now. We're from exchange value to use value. This is the process of consumption in the traditional economic sense of the term. That is, the reconversion of exchange value into use value by private individuals in the act of purchase or by production in the productive, uh, in the productive consumption. So that's, you know, buying the shovel to use the shovel. So then exchange value to uh, sign exchange value so this process of consumption, according to its redefinition in the political economy of the sign, it includes the act of spending as production of sign value, and conjointly it comprises the field of sumptuary values, where that thing being spent on is not just used for the sake of, you know, the, uh, tilling the soil or anything of the sort, but participates in, you know, that, that production of culture. And then from exchange value to symbolic exchange. So this describes the transfiguration of use value and exchange value into sign value, or again, of the object form and the commodity form into sign value. So it goes further than that, then into the transgression of these two forms, that is the economic, that is the economic and symbolic exchange. So according, in, in Baudrillard's terms, according to a reformulation which implicates the sign form in the field of general political economy, this completes a transgression of the sign towards symbolic exchange. So it's almost like he's theorizing in very much a, uh, similar to Marxist type analysis, kind of the inevitability of this reinscription of symbolic exchange, which is something that he disavows completely in 1987 with the ecstasy of communication, but something he disavows almost much earlier than that. But there is, uh, there is sort of a romantic idea here, this, this notion of returning, this notion of reinscribing a uh, certain logic of exchange that has been, that has been lost. So I, I digress, we continue. And then the process from which sign exchange value goes to use value, he states signs like commodities are at once use value and exchange value. 
The social hierarchies, the individuous differences, the privileges of caste and culture which they support are accounted as profit, as personal satisfaction, and lived as need, need of social value generation to which corresponds the utility of differential signs and their consumption. And to continue, sign exchange value to uh, economic exchange value, or to exchange value, uh, this involves the reconversion of cultural privilege of the monopoly of signs, etc., into economic privilege. Simple enough. And then sign exchange value to symbolic exchange value. This is the deconstruction and transgression of the sign form towards symbolic exchange. So without wanting to necessarily beat dead horse here, sorry I had to say all that, um, Baudrillard then moves into his equations. He uses math here where he says that symbolic, uh, sorry, he says that what sign exchange value is to symbolic exchange is what economic exchange value is to use value. So in his words, a sign value is to symbolic exchange what exchange value is to use value. That is to say, again, also still in his words, that is to say that between symbolic exchange and sign value, there's the same reduction, the same process of abstraction and rationalization as between the multiple concrete use values and the abstraction of exchange value in the commodity. Consequently, the form of the equation, if it is accepted, implies that an identical process at work on both sides is at work on both sides of the equation. So to put this in other words, and, in, and put it in a way that makes it easier for me to comprehend, um, where what use value is to exchange value is sort of that tangible, real purpose of the thing being exchanged. Now, Baudrillard places symbolic exchange on the same vein as use value. So, thinking back to Mouse's theory of the gift, there is a value inscribed on the things being distributed, being gifted. In that exchange, there is a certain utility in that it gives you something else. So you give a gift in the form of symbolic exchange in, the, in that uh, framework, and then with the expectation of having something be returned to you. So it serves something of a utility, which is why I believe Baudrillard is using it in these terms. So rather than, but we might ask, why does he not say that exchange value is also to the to um, symbolic exchange as it is to use value. Well, Baudrillard is interested in thinking about things in terms of their sign exchange value, where it's not something that necessarily has a fundamental relation to the market, but it's something that has a connection or to the modes of production that, that brought it into being, but it's something that has a sort of relationship with, you know, the cultural framework, the social, uh, societal framework of the time, taking into consideration you know, social stratification, class stratification, all these sorts of divisions, hierarchies, and whatever that play a role in the production of meaning that, to reiterate, doesn't, can't be grounded, per se, but is very um, susceptible to change. So we would be correct to say then, and Baudrillard lays it out in this way, that the relationship between economic exchange value and use value is the same as signifier to signified. Well, I say I say the same, but it's it's similar in that it's there's a connection to something real, whether that 
be utility, whether that be the real thing, me knocking on the table, table being here, whatever. Um, there is a connection to that thing between that which represents it and that which it purports to be. So Baudrillard concludes this section by thinking about exchange value and use value and its relationship to the signifier and signified as housing or as being kind of placed under the general umbrella of, under the umbrella of, in his terms, general political economy, how we might classically understand it. Where on the other side of the equation is symbolic exchange, that thing that has been for him under theorized. <clears throat> and this is this is apparent in Marx, if um, if I remember correctly, what Marx says of in the Gundrissa, he has a pretty negative outlook on pre-industrial societies. He likens them to a child, to a certain naivety. He asks if the Iliad can at all, at all be uh, seen as relevant today, or his terms almost verbatim are, is the Iliad relevant in the age of powder and lead? And this sort of disavowal is one that rubs Baudrillard the wrong way, because it wouldn't be correct to see political economy or to see production as manifest itself in the form of political economy as a form of critique necessarily change the way that culture has a certain merit or that how um, social stratification is, is made up. Of course it plays some role, but it doesn't affect it the way that Marxist analysis does. So in a sense, Baudrillard is looking at something of a meta-theory here. He's looking at something that kind of cuts across the traditional theoretical um, approaches in order to get at something bigger, which if, if we can accept that about his line of thought, it is a little bit harmful and perhaps misguided to try and search for a, a meta-theory or a sort of universal theory. And it would certainly seem antithetical to some of his bigger arguments. However, putting that point aside for now, um, he is is interested in those <clears throat> in that what he calls symbolic exchange or that form of exchange that precedes general political economy. So he takes that time to move into or that opportunity to move into seventh chapter where he looks at the uh, title Beyond Use Value, interestingly enough, where he wants to try and get beyond use value in order to into the realm of science. So this is a lot of the same that we've already been dealing with. However, he kind of hones in on Marxism here, where he starts off this chapter by saying that the status of use value in Marxian theory is ambiguous. He then goes on to say that we know that the commodity is both exchange value and use value, but the latter is always concrete and particular, that is use value, contingent on its own destiny, whether this be in the process of individual consumption or in the labor process. Exchange value, on the other hand, is abstract and general. To be sure, there could be no exchange value without use value. The two are coupled, but neither is strongly implied by the other. So to emphasize this, this point, or to really drive the idea, or to set up his analysis, he said that we must be more radical than Marx himself. Where he goes on to give an example, where in, in a radically different type of exchange, objects do not have the status of objectivity that we give them at all but henceforward secularized, functionalized and rationalized in purpose, objects become the promise of an ideal and idealistic 
political economy, idealist political economy, with its watchword, to each according to his needs, which can't be, it would vary so incredibly, and Baudrillard wouldn't want to disavow needs or uses that manifest themselves in, in the realm of science, in the realm of representation, where it's not just one's ability to till the soil or the use of, you know, a shovel to, to dig a hole, but that use value is something that can, you know, be rather liberal or democratic about it, that can have very different, manifest itself in very different ways. In fact, it can manifest itself in ways that don't have anything to do with real tangible things, like the need for status, if you will, the need for, I don't know, recognition by the state. Like, how do you, how do you quantify that? What does that look like? So this leaves Baudrillard to say, then, that the individual is an ideological structure, a historical form correlative with the commodity form, exchange value in brackets, and the object form, use value in brackets. The individual is nothing but the subject thought in economic terms, rethought, simplified, and abstracted by the economy, the entire history of consciousness and ethics, all the categories of occidental, occidental, psychometaphysics, it's only the history of the political economy of the subject. So needs, then, for Baudrillard, 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 uh, for him, everything surging from the subject, his body, his desire, is disassociated, disassociated and catalyzed in terms of needs, more or less specified in advance by objects. All instincts are rationalized, finalized, and objectified in, need, objectified in needs, hence symbolically cancelled. All ambivalence is reduced by equivalence, in that we try to conjure away, we try to exercise the possibility that things can have meaning in the realm of science, right? And this is similar to his previous discussion about the artwork. We try to hide the fact that the work of art is always in and of itself a representation. The work of art has no utility. It has no connection to a very basic uh, tangibleness. But we try to give it that meaning by focusing on the signature, by focusing on the painter. The same is uh, the same operates on the human here, where we try to, and we we might think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? These vague kind of you know, intro to psych uh, guidelines for what, what humans need. It's a, very, it's a very interesting thought experiment to try and theorize the ways in which needs can manifest themselves differently. So for Baudrillard, these are just strategies. These are attempts to try and reify the human, in a sense, to make the human apparent by giving them a very, you know, universal set of needs, by saying that humans have these needs that must be satisfied, they can be satisfied by coming into connection with, coming into contact with certain objects that will satisfy these needs through their use value. So effectively then, in an environment of commodity and exchange value, man is no more himself than he is exchange value and commodity. It's kind of post-human um, thought sort of bubbling up here. So it is illogical and naive to hope that through objects conceived in terms of exchange value, that is, in his needs, 
man can fulfill himself otherwise than as use value. It's as though we're, you know, going to emancipate ourselves from something. But this is really just a very clever, kind of stronger indoctrination into another, to another system, being that of, you know, the system of exchange, or this connection to um, illusory reality. This this kind of illusory uh, use value, which for is something we're going to disturb later on in his in his books. But for now, it's, I think it serves. I think it works. So consequently then, all these things only represent, in his terms, simulation models. So they provide, there are certain guarantees, sorry, of an objective reality for which, however, in the same moment, these systems, qua systems, substitute their, their own total logic. And then in brackets, he puts quite self-reflexively, he says, even the term substitute is misleading in this context as it implies the existence somewhere of a fundamental reality that the system appropriates or distorts, which is a very, po very important point of clarification, because a lot of, by what I've re read, a lot of secondary literature sort of implies that Baudrillard is, you know, uh, some kind of conservative kook who wants to just get back to, like, reality, and that simulation is something that, that is uh, kind of obfuscating reality. But in, in, in reality, ironically, uh, Baudrillard doesn't think that there's such a thing as reality. In fact, he thinks that reality, or in his last book, the term would be integral reality, is a, the thing that is doing the most harm to us. This idea of reality, or this idea of the original, is what is really oppressive. So use value in the terms of Marxist thought takes on a certain... Uh, value in its own right because it claims to be connected to uh, a, a basic fundamental human need, which is what people want, right? If we think of there having been a shift, like an epistemic shift in, uh, from, you know, the realm of reality, I'll dangerously use that term, uh, to, to that of like simulation, we are very much obsessed with this idea of returning, this idea of the original, this idea of the signature. So in effect, Marx came on the scene at the very at the right time, which leads you know leads Baudrillard to say that Marx raised raised to consciousness as a social relation. But value in the case of use value is enveloped in a total mystery, for it is grounded anthropo anthropologically in the self evidence in quotes of a naturalness and an unsurpassable logical reference, which then in effect gives the human the, the sense of their individuality, right? Their, their connection to their own needs, whatever they might be. And it's, you know, we think of Marx, we, don't, we wouldn't think that there would be these kind of hyper-individual undertones running through it. But this is one of the ways in which Baudrillard believes Marx to be a mirror, which we'll talk about in the next book, mirror of production, a mirror of productivism, a mirror of this, these kind of individual formations, this hyper-individualism, supposedly indicative of capitalism or not not supposedly very much indicative of capitalism and problematic absolutely in its own right so that's that at one time how theology supported itself on the myth of the fulfillment of man in the divine law political economy is sustained on the great myth of human fulfillment according to the natural law of needs so what Baudrillard does with that is he says that well how can these 
drives these kind of revolutionary um, moves or every revolutionary perspective for him is just it stands or falls on its inability to re-interrogate radically the repressive reductive rationalizing metaphysic of utility in that it doesn't consider it the and this is you know this book comes out just after may 68 kind of denouncing these uh radical movements precisely because they don't consider the ways in which that if we if we just think of use value it's not it's ranges it varies so considerably from you know state to state from town to town and i think of a conversation i had once with someone and he was arguing with me that culture doesn't exist and that it's all just you know capitalist um illusion it all just comes through in in you know, the commodity form can then be consumed, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But to think of it solely in those terms, I find it to be quite reductive, to say the very least. But it disavows difference, and it disavows how different needs are needed by different people. So to kind of subsume the human, you know, as that kind of universal type figure, under the aegis of a universal set of needs is a highly oppressive gesture, one that opens up the door to very powerfully oppressive ideas and regimes. But who knows, maybe maybe Baudrillard is off base with this because maybe we need a change, right? It's just one possible solution, but that's that's not the conversation for now. That's yeah, we'll save that one for another time. So this is where Baudrillard tries to open up his own uh, his own methodology, where he says the critique of the political economy of the sign, kind of the title, proposes to develop an, the analysis of the sign form, just as the critique of political economy once set out to analyze the commodity form. So what it, what will Baudrillard's analysis actually look like? And that's a very good question, and it's one that he's never really clear about. So the kind of the form that this analysis takes is in applying the same analytical reduction that that Marx kind of applied to political economy uh, towards that of ideology. So how in Baudrillard's terms, so the same analytical reduction must be applied to ideology. Its objectivity does not reside in its ideality, that is, in a realist metaphysics of thought of thought contents but in its form. So not looking at, I guess, the specific instances of, I guess, ideological manifestations, but in how ideology comes to comes to be and what it represents. Perhaps he's advocating like something of a Foucauldian genealogical dig here. Not so much in archaeology, but or it's hard to say. One or the other an argument can be made for either one in this case but he goes on to say I digress so this the critique feeds off a magical conception of its object it does not unravel ideology as form but as content as given transcendent value a sort of manna that attaches itself to several global representations that magically impeg, impregnate these floating and mystified subjectivities called consciousnesses like the concept of need 
which is presented as the link between the utility of an object and the demand of a subject, ideology appears as the relation between the projection of consciousness and the ideality of, vaguely, an idea or a value. So what is at play here, and is, is moving things toward this sort of equivalence, as was stated before, is the code. A term he never defines, really. It's something that permeates through his thought, and something I addressed before, but I, it's really annoying that he doesn't approach it in a clear way. But he says that it is the code which, in both cases, reduces all symbolic ambivalence in order to ground the rational circulation of values. And that it's the code that makes things apparent, that, that conjures away their kind of ambiguity, right? In favor of their being rendered concrete, solid, rigid, unchanging, which makes it easy for our consumption, which makes it a very good candidate for a capitalist system in that sense. But no matter how effective the, the, the code is at kind of consolidating things, cementing them, uh, Baudrillard is somewhat optimistic in that he says that uh, the code of signification never ceases to monitor and sy systematically control meaning. Whether that control be malevolent or benevolent is certainly up for debate, but there is... Not everything can be reduced to the, their, its realness, per se, or its being in the world. But that, you know, the signification is kind of always pulling the strings. It's always behind the scenes, no matter how hard we try to dissolve it remove it. So he proposes that to, to this attempt at least to render the sign transparent, to make it real, he says that ambivalence is the only strategy. So he says that ambivalence sustains a challenge to this legibility, the false transparency of the sign. Only ambivalence questions the evidence of the use value of the sign and of its exchange value. It brings the political economy of the sign to a standstill. It dissolves the respective definitions of signifier and signified, concepts emblazoned with the seal of signification. And since they assume their meaning through the process of signification in the classical sense, signifier and signified would be doomed by the shattering of the semiologic. In that it's that it's that ambiguity, the ambivalence, that makes it so difficult for a thing to be, you know, consolidated in time and space to be given a certain meaning. These structures still kind of work at that, notably the museum, you know, the art gallery, as uh, just two examples, work to continually remove ambivalence, right? To suggest that everything can be explained, everything has an origin, everything has a certain uh, telos, if you will, that brought it to this, this point. So where the, the distinction really lies is not in the break between the signifier and the signified, or kind of disturbing that um, binary set between them. Because for Baudrillard, you know, the signifier plays as much of a role in the construction of meaning as the signified, perhaps even more. But what he says is that this kind of rupture occurs between the signifier's form and, on the other side, exists the signified and the referent, which are registered together as content, the one of thought the other of reality, or rather, of perception, under the aegis of the signifier. So the referent in question here is no moral ex 
more, is no more external to the sign than is the signified. Indeed, it is governed by the sign. It is carved out and projected as its function. Its only reality is of that which is ornamentally inscribed on the sign itself. In a profound sense, the referent is the reflection of the sign, and this profound collusion, which depends on the form, is instinctively translated at the level of contents by the speaking subject. So this, this point, Baudrillard lines in opposition to the thought of Saussure and Fominist, uh, because he says that we, it shouldn't necessarily be in like the semiological analysis. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily see the signifier as being having no connection to the signified. <clears throat> what Baudrillard wants to do is kind of reverse it in a sense, where he says that the signifier does not develop from the signified, but that the signified is given its meaning as signified precisely by the signifier. Now, whether or not that's because of an analysis placed on the signifier or because of the signifier itself, however that might occur, is totally up in the air. But it is an interesting shift, because he's not interested in just kind of, to kind of butcher Derrida's term, to deconstruct the binary between the signifier and the signified. But he wants to turn the tables around and think about which one is privileged, flip that on its head, in a sense, and think about the ways in which they inscribe one another, how they inform one another, and how they aren't necessarily just uh, one's just simply um, a response to the other, or, you know, conceived by the other. So this leads Baudrillard to say that, in, in his terms, the crucial thing is to see that the separation of the sign and the world is a fiction that leads to a science fiction. The logic of equivalence, abstraction, discreteness, and projection of the sign engulfs the referent as surely as it does the signified. This world that the sign evokes the better to distance itself from it is nothing but the effect of the sign, the shadow that it carries about, its pantographic extension. And then Baudrillard turns comedian in that he says that in order to join the signifier and the signified of the sign in the world, he says that some, some form of wizardry is required to rejoin them. And what a coincidence, with an exclamation point. It is, it is with this very term that political economy attempts to reunite the subject and the object, it pauses as separate, that is, need. It's in that need brings these two together, that tries to make their, you know, tries to make, uh, or privilege to signify in a sense over the, over the signifier, <clears throat> tries to locate that, again, that origin, that, that sort of beginning point. So it is this kind of, this circularity that, that interests Baudrillard, where, where the signifier and the signified inform one another, in fact, he says it is this very circularity that is the secret of all metaphysical, in brackets, ideological, operationality. So there, it's fundamentally then no, uh, the real table fundamentally does not exist in his terms. It can be registered in its identity, if that identity even exists. This is because it has already been designated, abstracted, abstracted and rationalized by the separation, which establishes it in the equivalence to itself. Like the table doesn't, house meaning in the same way as it would would across cultures, across, you know, epistemic barriers. In fact, it's it's given a certain meaning precisely on its location and its ideological significance. So then it would, it would logically follow then that, in his terms, denotation maintains itself, maintains itself entirely on the basis of the myth of objectivity, whether the denotation is that of the linguistic sign, the photographic analogon, iconic, etc., Objectivity, in this case, is the direct 
adequation of a signifier to a precise reality, even the difficulty which arises in the case of the image, i.e. its non-discreteness, the fact that its signifier and signified form of continuum poses no fundamental challenge to the rule of the equivalence of the sign. Alright, keep going here. See if it's recording. It is. Alright, sorry about that, y'all. Yeah, I accidentally turned off the recording like a genius. So, sorry. Denotation maintains itself entirely on the basis of a myth of objectivity. So that's a pretty hard-hitting point, and one that kind of lays a pretty good foundation for what will follow in Baudrillard's uh, oeuvre. So to which he goes on to say that denotation is never really anything more than the most attractive and subtle of connotations. Which opens up some interesting terrain, because is it that we should stop thinking about these things in terms of denotation versus connotation, or that we should begin to kind of let objects think they're fooling us in their reality, in their denotation, in their being in the world, and perhaps we can gain I guess the upper hand in a sense, and that'd be that'd be like a playful Baudrillardian move, and one that kind of kind of a theoretical matrix that that he conceives of later. But it is interesting, nonetheless, to think about the possibility of resistance as being a submission, and it's I know for a fact not one that you know contemporary or ever uh, forms of anti-oppressive uh, struggles have adopted, nor would they ever, but as a thought experiment, as my, you know, privileged white cisness might allow, or certainly allows for me to think about things in those terms, which I'm always cognizant of, but I find it stimulating nonetheless. Nonetheless, Baudrillard calls for, at the end of this chapter, a, a total revolution, which is something that he, he's not satisfied with revolution being manifesting itself in sort of in small forms, because he states that total revolution, theoretical and practical, can restore the symbolic in the demise of the sign and of value, but this must come with the possibility of even destroying signs as being those things that, you know, designate a certain signified or certain reality, but I'd take this even further and say that, you know, in a sense, the world must burn, the, the, the realness, the, the, or not, not the things in themselves, but our connection to things must also be sort of challenged, must, must burn, where it's, we can't even be satisfied, I don't think, here with Baudrillard's claim that signs must burn, but our attachment to things, but this is just probably him, you know, following through with his logic in that there is no real distinction between the signifier and the signified. So in that sense, when he says that signs must burn, he means effectively then that, or it would follow, that signifieds, whatever that might mean, must burn. So it's on this note that Baudrillard starts to think about McLuhan. Now, it seems like Marshall McLuhan should have come up a little earlier, considering his, you know, theorization of the media. But what Baudrillard says, very polemically, there is no theory of the media. 
He goes on to say, The media revolution has remained empirical and mystical, as much in the work of McLuhan as with his opponents. McLuhan has said, with his usual Canadian Texas brutalness, Canadian Texan brutalness, I have a whole video on what that means, that Marx, the spiritual contemporary of the steam engine and railroads, was already obsolete in his lifetime with the appearance of the telegraph. In his candid fashion, he is saying that Marx, in his materialist analysis of production, had virtually circumscribed productive forces as a privileged domain from which language, science, and communication in general found themselves excluded. So from here we can see certainly uh, affinities between Baudrillard and McLuhan, where he, uh, Baudrillard is identifying in McLuhan a certain um, distaste for Marx's attachment to uh, certain use values, needs, whatever. So not just focusing on McLuhan, uh, Baudrillard turns his attention then to Encisberger, who he quotes, now this is Encisberger stating this, Monopoly capitalism develops the consciousness-shaping industry more quickly and more extensively than any other, excuse me, than any other sectors of production. It must at the same time fetter it. A social media theory has to work at this contradiction, but this hypothesis does little more than signal the virtual extension of the commodity form. Or sorry, this is Baudrillard now. This hypothesis that, you know, a social media theory has to simply take what capitalism has done right and move with it from there. Uh, Baudrillard states that this hypothesis does little more than signal the virtual extension of the commodity form to all the domains of social life. It recognizes the existence here and now of a classical communication theory, a bourgeois political economy of science and of their production. So this sort of critique is, is um, getting at the, challenging the possibility of there being, or opening up the possibility of the question, can there be a good use of the media? Which for Baudrillard the answer uh, would certainly be no. So for, for Baudrillard, Ensisberger, in his, in his attempt to kind of consolidate a social theory, uh, can do little more than to invigorate the, the same sense of the of Marxist theory, the same pitfalls, according to Baudrillard, that he purports Marxist theory uh, commits. So it would be false to think, then, in Baudrillard's words, that the, that the present order of the media are purely and simply means of distribution, distribution of knowledge, ideas. So me doing this talk here would certainly, you know, it's complicit in the same uh, scheme, in the same crime, if you will, the perfect crime. It does not get at how the distribution of ideas themselves in its own right is in itself something oppressive and how, you know, re the rendering things as, you know, signification or as signification being attached to a fundamental reality is in itself oppressive. So we can't think of the media as being unideological. In fact, Baudrillard says that they're very highly ideological precisely because those uh, the media are um, something other than the simple transmission reception of a message, whether or not the latter is considered reversible through uh, feedback. Because the totality of the existing architecture of the media founds itself on this latter definition. They are what always prevents responses, making all processes of exchange impossible, except in the various forms of response simulation, themselves integrated into the transmission process. 
So I think of a moment, I can't remember, I feel like it's in one of his cool memories, which I don't know if I'll ever get to on here, but he says that there's nothing quite as absurd as a television left on in an empty room. Because for him, that, that, that reveals that just how indifferent the television is, just how indifferent the messages being transmitted are. Which, you know, thinking about is, is really powerful because you take what you receive or see or hear in the media sphere as being something that is given to you, a certain gift. But there's really no chance for that reciprocity. You can't, you can't, there's no room for the counter gift. Which, God, can we think of the implications of that? How far does that go? So the, the the current fascination with like dystopian paradigms, <clears throat> dystopian paradigms, I guess works, um, is to try and suggest that the media is like a certain surveillance technique or anything of that sort. And I think just the other day there was that uh, release of the all that or the video of all the news broadcasters saying the exact same thing on like 20 different channels and people were freaking out they're like oh there's there's clearly like a, a focal point like a single point that, that you know we can trace this sort of like oppressive you know this uh, double think you know Orwellian um, big brother stuff too to which I was I was so baffled because I was confused as to why we needed to have that happen for us to think of the media in those terms. Where it seems to me like it was just so obvious that, you know, we think of the big media conglomerates, they are, they have certain special interests, obviously. Um, they push a certain agenda, obviously. But we, we needed to hear them all say the same thing at the same time for that to actually hit home. Like, and of course it's creepy. Like, there's no, there's no doubt about it. But this is something we should have been attuned to long ago. And it really, it really attests to the, in a sense, just the, the, our kind of optimism of the media. You know, our hopefulness, which Baudrillard says that there's no need to imagine it as a state periscope spying on everyone's private life. The situation as it stands is more efficient than that. It is, this, it is the certainty that people are no longer speaking to each other, that they are definitely isolated in the face of a speech without response. Now, of course, this, this can all get problem, problematized now because, you know, he write this in the set, probably the late 60s. Who knows when he was writing this particular piece? My God, it could have been much earlier, though. Because he, he was big into McLuhan before his first book, even. But he... Um, we can problematize that, right? And perhaps we can think of this, maybe we can think of like the current social media spheres as being, you know, a challenge to this, as being the allowance of a certain ability to respond, to communicate that has been lost, or that was kind of removed from the traditional interaction between someone and a medium, like television or whatever. But who knows? It's, I wonder what, how to think about I, I don't know how to think about that if it would I think for Baudrillard you know he is I'll say he's a conservative old dude or he was he'd probably still be 
you find a way to, you know, be troubled by it. But then again, in his later work, he was, he wasn't prepared to denounce technology in the way that we might think he was. Hmm, but no, we'll, we'll get to that. So Vaudrillard then becomes critical of McLuhan because, you know, McLuhan's famous statement, the medium is the message, for Baudrillard uh, would just be, I guess, the inscription on the medium, a certain value, a certain meaning, perhaps even a reduction to a, an origin, to a use that privileges it, in a sense. So in, in his words, he says that the medium is the message, in quotes, operates a transfer of meaning onto the medium itself, qua technological structure. Again, we are confronted with technological idealism. In fact, the essential medium is the model. What is mediatized is not what comes off the daily press out of the tube or on the radio. It is what is reinterpreted by the sign form, articulated into models and administered by the code. So it, by saying that the medium is the message, there is a split between or McLuhan is kind of emphasizing, reinvigorating that split between the thing and the thing representing that thing, or the sign representing that thing, by reversing it in that way. To which Baudrillard is like, no, we can't, these things are bound up with one another, right? It's very, I guess, I find it to be a very interesting reversal. So extending this thought, it, it would seem, or it is for Baudrillard that it is clear that those who aim to subvert media content only reinforce, reinforce the autonomy of the message as a separated notion, and thus the abstract bipolarity, bipolarity of the terminals of communication. So for him, in, in his words, right, it's, it's, it is a little naive to assume that the fact, to assume that the fact of media extension thus eliminates censorship, because if the media in, the, in itself, or the belief that media is somewhat separate from signified or whatever that that reinforces a certain oppressive schema that Baudrillard wants to certainly get past wants to think about these things as not being removed from one another or to, you know nothing exists outside the text type analysis so Baudrillard then in trying to align a potential transgressive approach borrows from Umberto Eco, where he says that uh, the graffiti reversal of advertising after uh, May 68. So for Baudrillard, graffiti is transgressive, not because it substitutes another content, another discourse, but simply because it responds there, on the spot, and breaches the fundamental role of non-response enunciated by all the media. Does it oppose one code to another? He asks. I don't think so. It simply smashes the code. And there's a certain immediacy to that, and I think there's a definitely potential there. And you know, this is really just emphasizing, you know, Baudrillard's desire to get at the heart of things. And it would be it would be all too easy to kind of tear apart his argument as just another reinscription of a certain potential order, being that of immediacy, whatever that might mean, spontaneity. But getting out on the streets would be something for him that is uh, a powerful response to a system that doesn't allow response to a media system that closes off the possibility of response. So it is on this note that I think that this this book wraps itself up and I, I, there's still another chapter and I, I don't know how 
or who kind of organized the chapters in these ways. But the, the second, the, the following chapter is kind of a, is very much a reiteration of everything else that is, uh, sorry, two more chapters that, that deal with very much the same thing or um, that deal with the privileged attachment to certain, you know, institutional formations, whether it be nature, desire, anything of that sort that we attach a certain significance to which then guides, you know, our actions, motivations, whatever. So thank you, everyone, who listened to this. I hope that it was helpful. Um, I know that I can be hard to listen to, and I'm not the most articulate. I use words. Um, I have trouble formulating thoughts often. But for those that stuck with it and that actually get something from this, I'm... I, I'm happy to hear it. You don't have to let me know. Just, I'm going to pretend that people make it this far and, and, and get something out of this. But for now, stay tuned for next time where we're going to be talking about, unless I get someone else on here, which, God, I hope so. I'm sick of my own voice. But we get to Baudrillard's next book, The uh, the Mirror of Production, where he you know gets out guns blazing against Marxist thought. Anyways, for those... For those that made it this far, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.